This week, we're starting a new sermon series. Um, here we go. We're getting into the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1. This week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, and the sermon series is going to be Jesus' mission continues. Jesus' mission continues. And it's a look at disciple-making in the early church. Now, there's a, there's a couple of things that I wanted us, or a couple of reasons that I um, went into the book of Acts next. You know, we just finished the book of Luke last week. So why, why go into Acts? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, first is that, you know, we finished Luke. And Acts is the sequel to Luke. So it just kind of seemed like a natural transition um, to go from that one into the next one to keep it you know, sequential. Um, also, one of the application points from last week's message was for us to develop a disciple-making strategy to be used and implemented at this church and in your life. And so what better place to look for a disciple-making strategy than in the early church? You know, we want to look at what the early church is doing and how they're making disciples and apply that here. Also, I want to see what, uh, how, uh, what, I'm sorry, what lessons we can learn from the early church to fulfill our vision. And our vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what can we learn to be better disciple makers? What can we learn to make disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, and I want to tell you that, you know, as I'm going through and, and trying to think through a disciple-making strategy, part of my responsibility as, a, as uh, the pastor for our disciple-making strategy is to utilize and to teach a Bible study methodology. Um, and so I'm going to give you what I use as a Bible study methodology. Hopefully, you can see this in my uh, preaching. Hopefully, you can take this and apply it to your own Bible study. I don't expect your Bible study methodology to be exactly like mine, but hopefully you can take it and use it uh, and adapt it to suit your needs. My Bible study methodology is guided by questions. And I, I wrote out all the questions and there were 15 questions, but they can all be broken down into three categories. And those three categories are, you know, what is the context of this passage? Whatever passage it is that you're reading, what is the context now, context is questions like, you know, who, what, when, where, and why. So as I'm looking at that, I'm asking myself, you know, what immediate observations can be made from this passage? What questions are raised by this passage? What would this passage have meant to the original audience? And what timeless truth can be taken from the original audience's understanding? Now, when I was going through my, um, my Bible study class in, at, at Liberty, I think the most important lesson that I learned through all of that is that the Bible cannot mean for us now what it didn't mean to the original audience. So whatever understanding the original audience would have gotten that has to relate to our understanding now in some way. Yes, we, we are in a different context, but we cannot take God's word and twist it to mean something opposite of what it meant to the original audience. Because context is important. It has been said that context is king when studying scripture. I've heard it said context is key and context is king. So we start with the context. My second question for my Bible study methodology, or the second category, is how does this passage 
fit into the overall story of the Bible. And that has questions like, how does this passage or truth compare to other passages? How does it contrast with other passages and why? What does this passage tell us about God's character? And how does this passage point to the gospel? So this is how each individual passage relates to the overall story of the Bible. Because as I said last week, the whole Bible is one story, and that is the story of God and how God relates to his people. The whole story of the Bible points to Jesus as the hero of the Bible. My third category for my Bible study methodology, the third question is, how does all of this apply to the modern audience? And that has questions like, how does this compare in contrast to my culture? How does this impact my life? How does this apply to our disciple-making strategy? And what action do I need to take because of this passage or because of this understanding? Now, I have all of that typed up. If you want a copy of it, I can email it to you. We can print it out. We can give it to you um, however you want it. I can get it to you if you want that or if you just want to kind of take that and build your own uh, Bible study methodology. Um, but I want to use this sermon series of studying through the book of Acts I want to use this, ser this sermon series as an introduction to my Bible study methodology and as a way for me to demonstrate and to teach that Bible study methodology. One thing that's really important to understand is that not every question will be answered in every single passage. Sometimes as you're looking through passages, like I said, there's 15 questions there. You, know, you might not be able to answer every question every time or not every question every time is applicable each time. I think there are some really important ones like, what does this passage tell us about God's character? How does this relate to the gospel? Obviously, context is extremely important every time. And what, what action do I need to take? Those questions, I think, are key every time, but each of the other questions help us to get to those points. So, talking about this Bible study methodology, when we look at the beginning of Acts, what do we see? What do we see? So I want to show you that this passage here at the very beginning of Acts, verses 1 through 11, tells us three truths about the book of Acts. First, it shows us authorial intent. What was the author's purpose in writing this um, book? Secondly, it shows us God's plan, specifically how God's plan is to continue after Jesus' ascension. And thirdly, we see our motivation, our motivation to carry on God's mission. And how that applies here is that is our vision, worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's jump right in. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, it says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so as I said, in, first, in verses 1 and 2, we get to see authorial intent. What is the author's purpose? And in, in the very beginning, we actually get a really, really big hint as to the author's purpose. And it says, I wrote the first narrative. The author says, I wrote the first narrative. And so we think, well, this must not be the first one. It must be the second one. Or at least, you know, the second one. It could be the third or the fourth. But it's at least not the first one. Do we see anywhere else in the Bible where that could be the first uh, letter. Yes, we do. And that's in Luke chapter 1, in the very beginning, Luke chapter 1, verses um, 1 through 4. It says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from every uh, from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So here is where we really get to see the author's purpose. Why did he write this? Well, it, it also tells us that it was Luke that wrote this because it is the same author to the same audience. Luke wrote the first, um, the first book, which was Luke, to Theophilus to, um, to document Jesus's life and ministry. But what was interesting was that Luke noticed that Jesus's ministry and the impact of his life didn't stop when he ascended. And so the book of Acts is just Luke's continuation. He's saying, yes, Jesus has ascended, but his ministry is continuing. And so the book of Acts is Luke's continuation of documenting Jesus's ministry. Um, It tells us the purpose. The purpose is to investigate eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life and ministry to determine their validity and give a more detailed report of the story. Acts is just the continuation. Luke is researching how Jesus's ministry is continued through his disciples. It's just a continuation. So the purpose is the same. We also get to see the audience. The audience is Theophilus. Now, hopefully you can see where this is relating back to that first category of my Bible study methodology. What is the context? We get author and we get audience. Okay. Now, Theophilus, we know that both of these letters are written to Theophilus. Well, then we have to ask, well, who was Theophilus? We have to look at that and honestly say, well, we don't really know who Theophilus is. But I've heard two theories that are really, really solid. One that I think is, is who Theophilus is. And another that you know, I don't think there's as much support for it, but it's still a, a, a viable option and a very interesting take. Um, the most likely option that I see for Theophilus is that he is probably, because of tradition, he's probably a somewhat wealthy man who had sponsored Luke to document Jesus's life and ministry. Because uh, writing takes time and it takes effort. Luke was a physician, and the more time that Luke spent writing was less time that he spent practicing his craft as a, as a physician. So he was losing money in doing so. So, you know, the publishing industry at this time was, was you know, high and, and making tons of money. No, it wasn't. The publishing industry hadn't even gotten started yet. You, had, you would have groups of scribes sitting in a room copying down. That's very expensive. And people buying books, nobody was buying books, except for maybe the wealthiest of the wealthy were buying books. And so you didn't have everybody as an author. Nowadays, publishing a book is really easy. You can self-publish. You can type it up and submit it to Amazon for self-publishing, and Amazon will sell it. And they'll get a cut, anything, anything they can do to make some money. Right? Publishing nowadays is really easy. Back then, publishing was not easy, and it cost a lot of money. And so what authors had usually was a sponsor, somebody who had money, who had a lot of money, and could pay to have this book written. So Theophilus is probably Luke's sponsor. But the second theory that I heard was really interesting, um, and that Theophilus, in Greek, that name means friend of God. Theophilus, the name, means friend of God. 
And so this other theory says that maybe the name Theophilus is just Luke's way of writing this letter to all Christians or people who are at least curious about the faith. Now, that's an interesting theory. It might be true. I don't think it has as much, um, as much uh, support as the first theory, but it could be true. And it, it gives us a good understanding of how we can read this, uh, this story. And so we see that Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts is to continue his account of Jesus's ministry because Jesus's ministry continued after he ascended. And then we get into verses three through eight. Verses three through eight says, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God while he was with them. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So in verses three through eight, we get to see God's plan. <coughs> Sorry. In God's plan, it, it, it all kind of stems around these three words. And this is a, this is a really deep phrase. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to get into all of the, um, the intricacies of this today. But I want to introduce you to this term, penal substitutionary atonement. We cannot talk about God's plan without addressing salvation. We cannot talk about God's plan without addressing the fact that we are sinners and that we deserve, each and every single one of us, deserve eternal damnation and hell. But God sent his son to die for our sins so that he can reconcile the relationship that we broke. And it is through faith in that sacrifice and in Jesus's resurrection that we can have eternal life. So let's break this down a little bit. Penal substitutionary atonement. Well, first we look at the word atonement because that that's, that's the focus here is atonement. Now atonement, the definition is reparation for wrong or injury. Atonement is a reparation for wrong or injury. So why do we need atonement? Well, because our sin breaks our relationship with God and it breaks our relationship with each other. Atonement reconciles that relationship. Our sin offends God. Our sin stands against God's holiness. And because of our sin, we have to be separated from God. And atonement is what is required to fix that relationship. Now, the punishment for sin is death. So our atonement is in death. Now, penalty, or sorry, penal, that is a penalty, you know. Um, so the penal atonement, it's a penalty. Uh, the penalty for sin is death and eternal damnation. Now, finally, substitutionary. This is the beautiful part about this phrase. Uh, like I said, I know it's big words, it's complex, but substitutionary. 
This is where somebody else takes your place. It's like a substitute at school. The substitute comes in and does the job for the teacher that day. It's like when the, um, the baseball pitcher, you know, his arm gets tired after seven innings of pitching and they need somebody else to finish out the last two innings. Except that we were wore out from the beginning. That, that our sin has, has affected us from the beginning. Ever since the fall with Adam and Eve, our sin has affected us. And so it's not that we've finally gotten so worn down that we need somebody to step in for us. It's not like a teacher who is sick for that day and they need a sub or is out for a week and they need a sub. It's that we can't do it and we need somebody else to do it for us. Jesus took that place for us. Jesus took our penalty in our place and offers atonement for us. Penal substitutionary atonement refers to the doctrine that Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. God imputed the guilt of our sins to Christ, and he, in our place, bore the punishment that we deserve. This was a full payment for our sins, which satisfied both the wrath and the righteousness of God, so that he could forgive sinners without compromising his own holy standard. It's big words. It's a complex understanding, but it's beautiful. It is the story of God's character that he loved us so much that he would send his son to die for our sins. It's a story of God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice. God's justice must be fulfilled. But because he loves us, he gave us a substitution. And we see that in Isaiah 53, 10 through 11. It says, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see the light, or he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. What I want to say to you is that you are, if you are trying to atone for your sins outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you are only, uh, you will only do so, do so. Sorry, let me start that over. If you are trying to atone, for your sin, outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you will only do so through an eternity in hell. But through faith in Jesus, he takes the penalty for our sins, gives us his righteousness, and we are adopted into the family of God as heirs to the kingdom of heaven. In, verse, in Acts 1, verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive. See, Jesus, uh, Luke emphasizes the reality of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. His resurrection and its implications became the heart of the apostles' message. Because without Jesus' resurrection, then that substitutionary atonement would have been for nothing. Without Jesus' resurrection, he would have been just another false messiah. There were false messiahs all over the place at this time in Israel. People coming up claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the one to reinstate the kingdom of God. But they all died, and they all stayed in the grave. But Jesus was resurrected. And that proves His power as God. It is because of the resurrection that we can have faith in Jesus' 
penal substitutionary atonement for our sins. And it's because of the resurrection that Luke continues this story. Jesus also mentions the Father's promise. See, God promises the believers the Holy Spirit. God promises Christians that once we have faith in Jesus' sacrifice, that we will have the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples to go and stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the Spirit. The mission of God is dependent on the Spirit. The mission of God is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Now, I talked last week about how we as the Southern Baptist Convention have kind of handicapped ourselves when talking about the Holy Spirit. We have spent decades trying to ignore the power of the Holy Spirit because we didn't want to be seen as you know, those crazy charismatics down the street. Or we didn't want to be associated with the Pentecostal movement. And so we just kind of pushed out any reference to the Spirit. That was wrong on our part. And we have to own up to that. As a, as a denomination, we have to own up to that. That we messed up in that. And we have decades to make up for in learning about how the Holy Spirit affects our life. About learning how we can use the power of the Holy Spirit to carry on God's mission. So how is the Holy Spirit affecting our lives? Well, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we will not bear any fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. Laurie talked about the gifts of the, of the Spirit a, a couple times in Sunday school this morning. And without the Holy Spirit, we will not display the gifts of the Spirit. It is through the Spirit that we get courage, comfort, wisdom, and discernment. Every aspect of the believer's life must be impacted by the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of the believer's life must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot make disciples if we are not first allowing the Holy Spirit to develop us into more mature disciples. Now this relates back to our vision. And that vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without reliance on the Holy Spirit, we cannot fulfill that mission. And I want to talk to you a little bit about stages of spiritual maturity. You know, we've talked about trying to make and implement a disciple-making strategy. Well, in order to be strategic about this, we have to look at the different stages of our life, of our spiritual life. And I have those here. The different stages of spiritual life. First, it starts with lost. If you are lost, you do not have the Holy Spirit. You are spiritually dead. So those first two should be together, should be lost slash dead, not two different bullet points. So if you are lost, you are spiritually dead. And this is why in the parable of the prodigal son, why the father is so rejoiceful when the son comes back. He says, this son of mine who was dead is now alive again. Without the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually dead. But then, as a believer, you are given the Holy Spirit. But you are not suddenly endowed with spiritual maturity. It takes growth. So you start off as a believer, as a spiritual child, as a child. And then you grow into young adulthood. Um, I did, I skipped one. Um, a spiritual infant. A spiritual infant is a new Christian, and that's a Christian who has not allowed the Holy Spirit to transform them so that they have the spirituality, or sorry, they have the spirituality of a new Christian. 
Um, it's somebody who has not been discipled. And so, again, they have the spirituality of a new Christian. Now, just because you have been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or 80 years does not mean that you are not a spiritual infant. You may still be a spiritual infant. Because if you have not allowed the Holy Spirit to transform you from within, then you're not growing in your spiritual maturity. The next step is a spiritual child. And this is someone who has a foundational understanding of Christian doctrine and has a dedicated personal Bible study and prayer time. I think that's step one, is taking the time each day and having a personal, dedicated Bible study and prayer time. That's where we're going to start to see that spiritual growth. That's where the Holy Spirit is going to be able to talk to you and start to change you is through studying scripture and through spending time in conversation with God. The next step is as a young adult, a spiritual young adult. And this is a Christian who has continued their personal prayer and Bible study and is showing the fruit of the spirit. They have started maybe seeking leadership positions in the church and relationships for the purpose of making disciples. So a young adult would be somebody who is intentionally seeking relationships to make disciples. Now, whether that is, uh, I, think, I think it's both you know, relationships with lost people to bring them out of that spiritual death, but also relationships with spiritual infants or spiritual children to help to bring them along. And thirdly, it's also relationships with people who are kind of spiritually more mature than they are to help them along to help them to become a better disciple. The next stage is a spiritual parent. And this, the definition here is short. This is a Christian who has made a disciple. You are a spiritual parent when you have helped to disciple somebody. When you are a disciple maker, you are a spiritual parent. And then you get the good stuff. You'd be a spiritual grandparent. And this is when that person that you have discipled is now discipling others. But just like with grandparents now, you know, when you get to be a grandparent, you don't stop being a parent. The relationship changes along the way. But my parents will always be my parents. And they will always, hopefully, speak wisdom into my life. Hopefully, I'll never get so big-headed that I stop going to them for wisdom. And in the same way, as a spiritual parent, you're still developing that child. But you're also still reaching out and making new disciples, being a disciple maker. So this is where we can look at ourselves and say, okay, where am I at on this? Where um, am, I, am I lost? Am I dead? Am I a spiritual infant or am I a child? Am I a young adult? Have I, have I been a disciple maker? And am I continuing that disciple making in other people's lives? This is important as we think through our disciple-making strategy as we try to implement this in our church. Next, we see that God's plan, in verses 3 through 8, we see God's plan continued. Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria into the ends of the earth. Now, I've heard this um, kind of summarized, I guess, as JJSE squared. You know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Um, 
What's really interesting about this is that these four bullet points can kind of be used as the outline for the rest of the book of Acts. You see, chapters 2 through the very beginning of 8 is the church's growth in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 is the church's growth in Judea and Samaria. And then 13 to the end of the story is the church's growth in the ends of the earth. It's really cool here how God has taken this, uh, this statement and laid out a plan for the rest of the book. God has taken this statement and laid out a plan for the rest of this book, but it's not just a plan for the rest of the book. It is a plan for his mission. And now, as I said earlier, you know, as we look at studying the Bible, context is extremely important. And what we see in the Bible it cannot mean something to us that it did not mean to the original audience. So we look at these different, um, these different titles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What did those titles mean to the disciples? Well, Jerusalem, it's the city they were in. They were there in Jerusalem. Judea is the region that Jerusalem is in. So you kind of have the city and then the region. Samaria, now... This one's interesting. I've heard a lot of people say that Samaria is just, you know, a, a, a nearby place. We're in, they were not in Samaria. It's just a nearby place. It'd be kind of like saying, well, we're not in Robeson County. We're in Cumberland County, but Robeson County is close to us. Or, you know, we're not in South Carolina. We're in North Carolina, but South Carolina is close to us. That's how a lot of people would relate Samaria. But if we think back to the original audience, the disciples, when they heard Samaria, they didn't think, oh yeah, it's that place over there. When they heard Samaria, they thought, oh, God can't love those nasty Samaritans. See, Samaria was a place that represented um, a strong distrust. Samaria was a place that represented anger. And Samaria was a place that represented systematized racism. So, when Jesus is saying that you will be my disciples in Samaria, he's telling them, you're going to go to these people that you hate, and you're going to be my disciples. And then the ends of the earth, well, that one is pretty obvious. It's the whole world, or at least the known world at that time. So what does this mean for us? What is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to us? How does this apply to our lives? Well, again, simply, our Jerusalem is the city that we are in. And that's Hope Mills. We are in Hope Mills. We are to be Jesus' witnesses in Hope Mills. What is Judea? What is the region that we are in? Well, I've heard some people say that's Cumberland County. I've heard some people say that's North Carolina. I'm fine with either one. We are in Cumberland County. Yes, that's our region. We are in North Carolina. Yeah, okay, that's our region. All right. What is Samaria? Hmm, this is where it's going to start hurting. What is our Samaria? Again, remember that Samaria to the original audience represented a people group that they hated. Samaria represented strong distrust, anger, and systematized racism. So what is the Samaria for the church now? What is Samaria for our church? And I would say that it is the Muslim community. What community in our, or what, what people in our community represent anger 
or there's systematized racism. And I would say that's the Muslim community. There is so much distrust in our culture for Muslims and people of the, of the Islamic faith. There is so much anger and hatred toward that, that religion. Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses to those people. Now, I will say that a lot of people look at Hope Mills or Cumberland County and say, well, we don't have a lot of Muslims here. Well, we do, and it's a growing population. It's a growing population. In my time at Grace Creek Middle School, um, I've taught a lot of students. Um, you know, I have 124 on my team this year, 124 students that I teach every day. And I've done this for, this is my sixth year. So that's a lot of students. But if you think about the number of students in Cumberland County, that's just a small fraction. That's just a small fraction. But in my time at Grace Creek Middle School, I have taught two students who are Muslim and one student who comes from a Muslim family but is not Muslim himself. So that tells me that of my small portion of Cumberland County students, there is a student or there is a Muslim population. And those students come from families and their families are here. If we take that and extrapolate that into the rest of Cumberland County, we know that there is a Muslim population here. So what are we doing as a church to be Jesus's witnesses to them? How are we taking the gospel to them? And finally, the ends of the earth. You know, this, I don't think this understanding changes a whole lot for us. You know, for the, the disciples at that time, it was the known world. It was the Roman Empire. But for us, it is the known world. It, we just have a, a greater understanding of the world. It is our responsibility to take the gospel to the whole world. Now, I'm not saying that each and every single person is going to go to different parts of the world to be a missionary. But as a church, are we supporting those who are going? As a church, are we raising up children with an understanding that we are missionaries no matter where we're at? Are we a church that is recognizing that call to missionary, that call to missionhood? If somebody, a believer, steps up and says, you know, I feel like God's calling me to whatever country. You know, it could be Canada. It could be China. It could be somewhere in Africa. It could be India. It could be North Korea. You know, are we as a church recognizing that call and supporting that call? Are we as a church supporting missionaries? Now, we just gave for the Annie Armstrong mission or the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And that is one way that we support. But as part of our disciple making strategy, we have to have intentional effort. We have to make intentional effort to be Jesus's witnesses in each of these categories. So if God's plan is to make disciples in each of these areas, intentional emphasis for our for making disciples in each of these areas must be included in our disciple making strategy. If we're failing to do so, we're not following through with Jesus's mission. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, we get to see um, motivation. Starting in verse 9, it says, After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. I'm sorry. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took them out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men with white clothes stood by them. 
They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So this is where we see our motivation. Our motivation to carry on Jesus' mission. The disciples' motivation to carry on Jesus' mission. First, is that Jesus is in heaven. He's not dead. A really, a really good way to kill the motivation behind a mission is for the leader to die. But Jesus is not dead. He is in heaven. Jesus is not dead. When he was resurrected from the grave, he proved to us that his mission is worth following. If Jesus were dead, there would be no real motivation to continue his mission. Without the resurrection, everything that we do as Christians is pointless. If Jesus is still in the grave, then we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be worshiping here with Victory Baptist Church this morning. If Jesus is still in the grave, there is no point to Christianity. But Jesus is not in the grave. He is resurrected. And by that, we can have motivation to carry on his mission. While the Gospel of Luke concentrates on Jesus' ministry on earth, his ascension and heavenly rule define the book of Acts. His ascension and heavenly rule define the book of Acts. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that brought him back from the dead, is with us. And I can see Hannah nodding back there. She's thinking of a song. And it's Same Power by Jeremy Camp. And he says, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us, lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea, lives in us. He lives in us. That same power that brought Jesus back from the grave is the power that we take to carry on Jesus' mission. We also see the disciples were reminded by the angels that Jesus was coming back. And so we started kind of with a, a positive motivation, but then we kind of get a negative motivation. I know that sounds weird, negative motivation. But so let's talk about positive motivation is motivation because of reward or because of encouragement. Negative motivation is motivation out of fear of punishment. But we see that here as well. The disciples were, were reminded that Jesus is coming back. See, I think of it kind of like when I was growing up, my dad was not much of the disciplinarian in the family. My mom was the disciplinarian. And we had chores that we were expected to do when we got home from school. Sometimes dad would get home from work before mom did. And dad would come in, and if our chores weren't done, he would say, you better hurry up and get these chores done before your mom gets home. Because if they're not done before mom gets home, you're going to be in trouble. This is kind of what the angels are saying here. Jesus has given you a mission. You need to make sure that you follow through with it. Because if you don't, there's going to be punishment. We see that in the parable of the Minas. I talked about that. It's been a while now. Um, I think five weeks ago. Um, in the parable of the Minas, it says... There was, a, uh, there was a young man who had left to become king. He had left to get the authority to be king. But before he left, he gave his servants large sums of money and said, carry on in business while I'm away. He says, but I'm coming back as the king. And so we see the young man leaves 
and gets the authority to be king and comes back. And when he comes back, he asks his servants, what have you done with my money? What business did you carry on with? The first servant comes forward and says, master, you gave me 10 minas and I have made 10 more. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because of this, you will be ruler over 10 towns. The second, ser- the second servant comes forward and says, you gave me five minas and I have gone and, and multiplied them and made five more. And the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because of this, you will be ruler over five towns. And the third servant comes forward and says, Lord, I was scared. I know that you are a tough judge. And so I took your money and I buried it. So here it is. You gave me one mina. Here's your one mina. And he says, you wicked and evil servant. Take what was given to him and give it to the one who has 10 towns. These angels talking to the disciples are reminding the disciples that Jesus is coming back and he's going to expect a report on how well we have carried on his mission. One of my greatest fears is that on judgment day, I will hear you wicked and evil servant. That's one of my greatest fears. You know, in in Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, we've done all these wonderful things in your name. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That fear motivates me. That fear motivates me to move forward. Now that is, that's a negative motivation, but it keeps me moving. There is also a positive motivation. Again, we recognize that because Jesus was resurrected, we can know that that power lives in us to carry on his mission. Again, that motivates us to mission. We look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I can't. You can't. We can't carry on the Great Commission if we have not believed in the gospel for our own lives. And that gospel is simple. The gospel is that I am a sinner and that I can't do anything to fix it. I have sinned against God's holiness and because of that, I deserve hell and eternal damnation. But God loved me so much. God loves the whole world so much that he came and he lived a perfect life and he died an excruciating death to pay the penalty for my sin. And he was resurrected from the grave so that I can know that he is God. He was resurrected from the grave so that we can carry on and reconcile that relation and our relationship with God can be reconciled. He sends the helper. He sends the Holy Spirit to help us, to help us to be better disciples. Our motivation is simple. Our motivation is the gospel. And that matches our vision. That vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our motivation to carry on Jesus' mission. This is our motivation to you to, to apply our vision to reach our community for God's kingdom. So how do we apply this? The application. First, if you have not accepted the gospel, that is your first application. 
If you are not a Christian, do so today. If you have not accepted the gospel for your life, do so today. Admit that you are a sinner and believe in Jesus and salvation. Second, our second application is to develop a personal Bible study methodology. A personal method for studying the Bible. Like I said, I have mine and I can make it available to you if you want it. And thirdly, it is to rely on the Holy Spirit in your life and in the life of our church so that we can fulfill our vision of making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your grace. Your grace truly is amazing, Lord, because we don't deserve your love. We deserve your wrath. But Lord, you loved us so much that you took our place. You loved us so much that you paid our debt. Lord, I pray this morning that we can take your love and give it to our community. Father, I pray that if there is somebody here this morning who does not know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you will touch their hearts. Bring them to a point of repentance, Lord. Help them to believe in you. Father, I pray that this morning that we can take this knowledge that you have given us and apply it to our church so that we can fulfill your mission. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.